namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So we've arrived at the um, evening of the first day. It's amazing how long one day can be, isn't it? It's always curious when you have these uh, mixed time-length retreats, so that for the people who are just here for the weekend, it's now it's nearly over. For the people who are here for the for the whole uh, nine or ten days, it's just getting revved up. And of course, there are those who are here for the weekend who are thinking, oh no, if only I could stay longer. And there, of course, <laughs> those who are booked in for the ten days who are thinking, maybe I could kind of slide out. <laughs> disguise myself as a weekender. But as I uh, prefaced things with uh, yesterday, you know, the, the aim is, uh, with, with all of this, is to, to try to learn from everything that we experience, to, to, uh, to look at all its dimensions, and to, to make this something that we we learn from a feeling of of um, of uh, expectation, disappointment, a feeling of of time, you know, enormous stretches of time, feelings of of uh, pleasantness of of having nothing to do, or the terror of having nothing to do. You know, what do I do? Who am I when there's nothing to do? Oh dear. <laughs> so the, the point is uh, that you know, none of these different um, qualities or states of mind are, are good or bad in themselves. But we, we look at them, we taste them, we learn from them. And uh, this is our endeavor. Now, those of you who might uh, who got uh, good eyes up at the front might be see there's a, a picture has appeared on the shrine, and uh, this is a picture of Allen Ginsberg, who uh, apparently passed away this morning. Uh, I'm not quite sure from what I think heart failure, but uh, so he uh, left us earlier today, so we thought we'd. Uh, Honor his contribution to uh, to the human world, and put him up on the shrine for a few days. Um, and uh, thinking of this, and um, how we uh, how we are helped by each other, how we um, uh, honor each other, how we uh, are encouraged by each other in this world, and, and um, say something like um, somebody like uh, Allen Ginsberg is a, a name you know, we've all 
heard of, I'm sure, uh, has probably influenced some of us greatly, some of us um, a little. His involvement in in uh, bringing the the Buddha Dharma into the popular consciousness, him and and Jack Kerouac in particular, back in uh, the late 50s, early 60s. These were major voices that brought um, Dharma into the the American vernacular. And so, uh, however we've been affected or helped, then there's a sense of of um, involvement. Our lives have, have touched each other. His, what he did, the way he lived, and um, things he brought into the world have, have helped us to to, uh, to arrive here. Maybe you wish you hadn't arrived here, <laughs> but you can't blame him anymore. <laughs> but um, it's also interesting the whole the, the way a shrine works. You know, we have this the shrine here, and we have. Uh, candles, flowers, incense. The, the shrine occupies a central uh, place. Uh, it's uh, the uh, kind of focal point of the room. And this has a purpose, is obviously symbolic meaning and, and power that a, a shrine has. So uh, what, that, what, is, what that's about, it's like a shrine is where we place those things that we, we value most highly, that we respect most most highly, that are most precious and worthy to us. So that uh, a shrine is, is almost always central, it's symmetrical, has a, an innate um, beauty and, and uh, balance to its form. And the different elements of, of uh, candles, flowers, incense, these are... Um, these represent the, the the core qualities of the of the Buddha Dhamma. That uh, the candles represent light and wisdom, illumination, panya. That uh, without light, then we live in darkness. So the, that's what the candles represent. The um, uh, the flowers. Flowers represent virtue. Flowers are, are that which is naturally beautiful, that which is uh, innately delightful and pleasing to the eye. So that uh, the flower is like a virtue, virtue, uh, a beautiful person, someone who is kind, who is gentle, who is, who is uh, unselfish, who is generous, is someone who is always loved, is always appreciated, or people are always glad to have you around, if that's the way you are, like a flower. So that um, flowers are always used to embellish a shrine. Then um, incense um, symbolizes samadhi. And when when you burn incense, and the the point of of um, a flame where incense is burnt, we haven't got any burning because people have sensitivities to it. But you can use your imagination. But the point of uh, of a fire in the, the incense is like the the one-pointedness of the mind, the focal point of the mind, and then from that point of fire, of energy, then this beautiful fragrance uh, fills the atmosphere. So just in the same way, when the mind is focused, when the mind, when there is samadhi, when there is collectedness, then the um, the space of the mind is uh, is perfumed. With uh, it becomes a delightful, pleasing space. So then, um, the center of the shrine is say in the Buddhist tradition. Then we have a, an image of the Buddha, and um, the Buddha represents the kind of ultimate spiritual principle. And uh, the word Buddha itself means awake. Or, or knowing, bud means is the same as the root for intelligence, for awareness, for knowing. So that um, the uh, the figure of the Buddha image is representing you know, a human being in a in a perfect state of of awakeness, 
and the the uh, Buddha images um, uh, cla- when they're made classically, they are always an androgynous figure, so that the the figure is is both has both masculine and feminine qualities, which is indicating that that wisdom is a is a, a universal quality. It's neither feminine nor masculine. It's a, it's a universal, and that. Uh, the uh, bowing to the shrine, bowing to the to the, the Buddha image, um, is bowing to to wisdom, to truth, to virtue. It's bowing to to wisdom, to concentration, to virtue. And uh, and in that, what that's doing is saying um, there is something in this universe which is uh, more worthy of looking up to than my ego. There's something that's more important than me in life. <laughs> something that is grand, greater than my personality. Some dimension of, of my being which is, which is greater, which is uh, more pure, which is more noble, more vast than the limits of my personality, my ideas, my history, my loves, my hates, my achievements, my problems. So then, uh, when we uh, we say wish to honour someone, or, or often on a shrine, we'll have pictures of our, our teachers and mentors. Then, um, what that is saying, putting up a, a picture of Allen Ginsberg, and now he's passed away, is that you know, he's in people's minds. I mean, many of us have been affected by him. To honour and to raise up the memory of that person, to to see what uh, what elements of their life have affected us, uh, what uh, what ways have they the, the, to respect the ways in which that person, what they have done, what they have written, what they what they manifested in the world, have helped to bring us to uh, a realization of of truth, uh, becoming closer to reality. So it's also interesting, and, and I think it uh, reflects some of the things we were talking about at the, the question time today, is that, that um, just because you, um, uh, something has value, or something that is, uh, is worthy, or, or is something that you respect, doesn't mean to say you particularly like it, or that you, or that you um, take on board all aspects of it, so that by respecting someone, by honouring them, it doesn't mean to say that you like everything about them or that you're pretending that every single thing they've done is good. So now I think, oh, well, we put Allen Ginsberg alongside the Buddha. Okay, maybe this means that you know this is the fourth refuge: Buddhang, Dhammang, Sangang, Ginsbergang. You know that. So now we become what we all become Ginsbergists, but it, it isn't that way at all. Um, it's uh, it's uh, in the way of uh, of um, respecting our, our ancestors, our, our elders, our, our mentors. It's a dis- there's a, there's an element of discriminative wisdom that is involved, and uh, just as with a, a dharma talk, you know, when when a dharma talk is given, then it's always given in the spirit of um, whatever is useful and meaningful and good that you hear, then take that and use that. And whatever is uh, not meaningful or is, is useless or you, you are, are clear is downright wrong, then you just leave it aside. You don't have to kind of get up and condemn it or walk out or, or get angry or, or um, get entranced and, and worshipful. But just to to listen with a discerning ear, some of it makes sense and resonates. You go, aha, yes, that's good, that's right. Some of it uh, grates on the ear. No, 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 (laughs) no. This guy is totally off. Um, And some of it is like, hmm, never thought that before. That sounds a bit strange. Don't know. And just to allow ourselves to to take and to use what is uh, what resonates and to leave the rest aside to to make no judgment 
but uh, to take what's worthy and helpful. So in the same way, with, with looking up to our, our mentors, our ancestors, uh, developing gratitude towards our, our parents, our teachers. And this is never. This is not to say that you know everything that that my parents have done uh, is kind of pure and wonderful and good, or everything that my teachers, Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Sumedho, uh or even the Buddha have done and said are are, are totally wonderful and and uh, um, impeccable in every way, because that's just not the case. Um, but it's recognizing that there are qualities there that have touched the heart, that have um, have powerfully affected uh, my life, and for which um, uh, and have, which have brought gifts and blessings that, that that have not come from anywhere else. So it's a uh, this is a, a crucial element of understanding. Um, but just because that person might have faults doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't respect them or be grateful. We get a very kind of absolutist, um, as a kind of absolutist uh, attitude within the Western world that if we like something, then we think you know it, it's got to be perfect and good and, and marvelous in all ways. And then if something in it disappoints us, then we get uh, upset and, and are off balance. But uh, one has to, to find that, uh, rather than that, uh, that uh, taking that very kind of idealistic, purist um, standpoint. That what really impressed me with the Buddha Dhamma from the beginning is that the Buddha was not an idealist. He was a, a realist, an ultimate realist. And so that um, one has to exercise that kind of discernment. As one time, um, Ajahn Sumedho had been in, in Ajahn Chah's monastery um, for a, a few years. This, I think, was uh, I think just before Jack Cornfield showed up, um, maybe just about the, that time, about 1969. Ajahn Sumedho had been there a couple of years, and at first he was extremely inspired, and Ajahn Chah could do no wrong, and this was the, you know, the, the savior of the world, and this was the most marvelous thing ever happened to planet Earth. And then, after the first si- uh, and the first six months went by, <laughs> and he started to notice uh, more and more faults that Ajahn Chah had. He used to smoke cigarettes and chew betel nut, and, and he had a big stomach, and and uh, he was always talking to people. And and uh, soon, you know, the catalogue of, of of faults and and uh, inconsistencies was getting longer and longer and longer. So then, the uh, the the brave young Sumato. Um, also, being an American, decided, well, I better go and I better go and confront him with this. You know, give it to him straight. You know, lead with the right. So, uh, and it, it, maybe a little footnote about Thai culture. Thai, in Thai, uh, the Thai uh, character is totally non-confrontational. That you always go around things. Like if 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 I've got uh, a complaint. Uh, about you, and I, I see that you're doing something wrong. Then I'll I'll talk to him, and I'll say, you know what really annoys me about some people is these blue shawls that they wear. <laughs> you know that kind of thing really upsets me, and not make any kind of eye contact with the person in the blue shawl. That's kind of simplifying it a little bit, but that's the way it's done. Is that you you never you never go face to face with anyone. So anyway, Ajahn Sumedho kind of um, drew up his courage and went and took his list to uh, to Ajahn Chah and um, said, you know, I'd uh, like to bring a few things up uh, for your attention. Um, and so then he went into his spiel and started giving him his, his list of, you know, well, I really don't think you ought to do this. And it's not a very good example that you do that. And... and um, you know, I, I really think that it would be much better if uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. So Ajahn Chah kind of sat there, kind of quietly. I, I wasn't there at the time, obviously, but uh, I'm sure he was um, being very receptive and smiling knowingly. <laughs> and when finally uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha got to the end of his list, and Ajahn Chah apparently looked at him sweetly and said, Well, 
perhaps it's a, a good thing that I've got all these faults, because otherwise you would be looking somewhere outside yourself for the Buddha. Uh-huh. Exit, tomato, stage left, tail, <laughs> tail between legs. <laughs> and it's also, and also, Ajahn Chah used to frequently quote this um, an exchange that took place between the Buddha and Sariputta, who was the the uh, chief disciple of the Buddha and his uh, the most wise uh, of all the Buddha's disciples, most accomplished meditator. And um, the, the Buddha gave a Dhamma talk, and, and um, after he finished, he turned to Sariputta, who was sitting next to him, and, and said, um, uh, did you hear what I, I was saying in this Dhamma talk, Sariputta? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, um, did you, uh, had you heard me say those things before? And he said, no, no, I, I hadn't heard that before. And then he said, um, do, you, uh, do you believe? that what I was saying was true. And Sariputta said, no. And the Buddha said, why is that? He said, uh, because uh, I haven't had the, the time or the opportunity yet to, to contemplate those things, to, to um, see them for myself, and to know from direct experience that they are actually true. And then the Buddha says, good, Sariputta, very good, very good. You are indeed... Um, you are indeed wise. And then he launches into a, a second Dharma talk, praising Sariputta, saying, you know, this is the way to, um, to operate, because even though he's my chief disciple, and even though he has perfect faith in the, in the wisdom of the, of the Buddha, of the, the Tathagata, still, even then, he does not just pay lip service to um, uh, the words that I say, but he will even in... Uh, even in this situation, he will um, take what uh, is said by the, the Buddha and will contemplate it and look at it before he will affirm it as being true and right. Now, and, um, this afternoon we were to- were talking a little bit about the uh, the difference between uh, liking everything and uh, having respect or, or kindness towards all things, and uh, the uh, another aspect of that which is um, the difference between um, pain- uh, painfulness or, or displeasure and and hating things that we can experience pain or discomfort and displeasure without um, creating uh, aversion or or hatred for things. And uh, as I was saying then, uh, and I'd like to reiterate, this is an extremely important principle and something that, you know, with the meditation practice, to really get a feeling for the difference uh, between those qualities. Because we can experience... um, we can experience and, and express kindness and respect um, with, a, with a peaceful heart, without any kind of confusion. And the, when, we, when we get into liking, when we get into preferences, liking or disliking, when there's a, the mind is caught up um, and absorbed, into uh, that kind of, of um, self-based love or hate, then there's a certain degree of, of confusion, there's a certain degree of, of cloudedness that's there. Um, that kind of, uh, of negativity or, or um, affirmation of, kind of, uh, of wanting to possess, that inherently involves a certain turbulence or cloudedness, unclarity of mind. But... Uh, kindness or respectfulness and also pain, um, painfulness, can be experienced with a completely peaceful heart, uh, can be experienced without any kind of, uh, of unclarity, without any kind of limitation of our freedom. Now this is because um, 
in those qualities there is, uh, in the, say, the quality of kindness, um, or in the quali- in the quality of just experiencing uh, painfulness with, if that's experienced with with a, a pure awareness, with mindfulness, then there's ne- not necessarily any sense of self associated with that feeling. It's a, a, like a pure. Uh, appreciation of the quality of nature. There's just a painful feeling. It's not good or bad, it's not mine. It's just what it is. It's just as it is. And um, so the quality of kindness or compassion, uh, uh, this comes forth from a a place of of selflessness, a place of of, uh, purity within us. Another uh, aspect of this, which is um, uh, very strong within our, our consciousness as a society, where we also cause difficulty for ourselves in not making the, the distinction, is, in, is between the, the, um, the, the qualities of, of guilt and shame. Now, I, I don't want to get into kind of a semantic discussion on semantics, um, people use these words in different ways, but uh, by the word shame, what that what I'm referring to is the the natural the naturally painful um, psychological consequences of uh, of acting in a way which is hurtful or cruel or selfish, which is which is unkind or greedy, destructive. So that has an innate um, painful result to it. Guilt is where we take that uh, that painful result, or even just concoct some kind of um, uh, inner scenario, and um, make it into a, a a personal problem. So that guilt has always got a a large element of I and me and mine. I shouldn't have. Oh, if I w- uh, if I could have, if only. And the the letter I is written heavily upon it. So, uh, in, uh, in our culture, oftentimes, when we have done something that's unkind or foolish or, or greedy, um, we experience feelings of regret or remorse. And um, it can be seen that sometimes that, that is interpreted as some sort of weakness or a problem uh, within ourselves. And that... Um, we're so used to taking hold of that and, 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 and beating up ourselves with it that uh, we don't realize that, that actually that feeling of painfulness that comes from, from acting in an unkind or selfish, um, greedy way, that's actually something which is helpful to us. Like physical pain is a protective mechanism. It's there to, to protect the body. The animals that didn't feel pain got eaten. They died. You know, they died of exposure. They got. They got eaten because pain. When we experience pain, then we get away from the thing which is causing us damage or co- is uh, is uh, creating danger. Just like fear is an uncomfortable feeling. It's supposed to be. It, you know, the animals that didn't experience fear are either the ones that are eating all the others, like the you know the lions and the tigers. Uh, or if they were, if you know, if a rabbit without fear, it, you know, is a is a dead rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time I was uh, I was on retreat in the in the forest in the, um, one of our monasteries in England, and and uh, I was sitting up on this gate, watching the sunrise, looking to the east, watching the sunrise, and there was this big meadow in in front of me, and it was very early in the morning, and I saw these deer out grazing in the in the field uh, and they hadn't noticed me there you know I'd been sitting there since before dawn and the, the deer were just kind of nibbling away and I was sitting there very very still and then finally I, I had to move or I coughed or something and the, you know, the deer all kind of looked around huge eyes and the ears perked up and, and looking at me and suddenly they and, and they they looked at me and then I kind of waved at them and they all, in four or five of them together, they all bolted off across the field, racing for the distance. And 
So then, uh, you know, I launched into this. Oh, what a shame! Poor things, so bound by fear, and and uh, and you know, their life must be one continuous um, uh, anxiety. And then this sort of poetic flight kind of finished itself. And then I thought, don't be so stupid. <laughs> the deer that weren't afraid got eaten. You know, the, the fear is, is an uncomfortable condition, but it's what gets you to a place of safety. And so in exactly the same way, um, that feeling of shame or that feeling of, uh, of, of wrongness is not something to shy away from or, or look at as a personal problem. It's not something to, that we, are, um, we need to make into a, a big headache for ourselves. But we can just use that as a, as a sign, as a, a warning light that, you know, when you do something stupid, it hurts. When you're selfish, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a painful feeling that goes with it. It's a, it's a sign of our greater nature saying, don't be selfish. <laughs> we can do better. Or that uh, when we act in a, a way that's hurtful to someone else, it's, that, it's just registering to us, you, know, you hurt that person. You don't have to do that. This is the painful thing to do. And so that it, it uh, without turning it into a, a guilt trip or a blame, being, uh, creating kind of blame out of it, we can use that kind of, uh, of response to guide ourselves, to see what brings happiness for ourselves, what brings happiness for others, what makes life better. And you know, with, the, with the meditation and this time together and also taking this, this away, this is a really important area to, to look at, to reflect on, to contemplate, because you find that as you begin to tease those things apart and you begin to really distinguish um, the mind creating guilt and, and um, self-criticism, and, you, you, uh, and you, you get a sense for the flavor of that, and you separate that out from just the, the natural feeling of, of, of remorse for having um, uh, told an untruth or, or being uh, behaved in a hurtful way, then what you realize is that, that we can experience remorse or that painful feeling, again, with a completely peaceful heart, just like you can experience a pain in your leg or, or, um, or something of that nature with complete peacefulness and without any kind of limitation on the, on your, on the sense of freedom and, and wholeness. It's just a sensation, it's just a feeling. So too, in exactly the same way that, you know, I say something kind of slighting or unkind to Venerable Punadamo, and then, then that stings. And I can say, that wasn't a very kind thing to say. Okay, try and do better next time. So it's like seeing where we take a wrong turning and helping us to endeavor to do better in the future. End of story. And to, to really get a sense for that can create an enormous space in our world because we're so used to um, the I element, the sense of ownership, me and mine, getting caught up in, in all these areas. I like, I don't like. I want, I don't want. Uh, I should, I shouldn't. And that... Uh, 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 one of the great gifts of, of Buddhist practice and the Buddha's teachings is to learn how that sense of I is additional to the whole process. That sense of me and mine, the sense of I, is, is optional. It's not, it's not uh, essential to, uh, to our passage through life. And actually, what, uh, when we begin to see that and we start to, to be able to let go of that, that sense of ownership, that um, identification with our emotional world, the psychological world, and the physical body, and our possessions, and so on. As that sense of I becomes somewhat more transparent, then we experience a corresponding lightening of the heart. You know, enlightenment doesn't mean just getting brighter, it means not being so heavy. <laughs> lightening up. 
Another element of this is um, also to do with um, that we came up earlier to, uh, during the day of um, understanding that uh, everything belongs. You know that one of the another of the ways that we cause a great deal of difficulty for our, ourselves and people around us and in the world is this being um, possessed by the sense of, of, of what's fair and what's unfair and um, that you know things shouldn't be this way you know I mean how many of us experience that how many of us have had that feeling it shouldn't be this way that's not fair that's not right shouldn't be like that I shouldn't be this way he shouldn't be that way she shouldn't do, she shouldn't have done that and it's kind of a totally normal way to to uh, to think, isn't it? It just seems so kind of utterly commonplace. But yet, there's there's an assumption there. There's a set of assumptions that's going on there when we when we frame that thought. That um, is uh, is very corrupting or dangerous to us, because what it's saying is that you know this thing sh- should not be. This this element should not belong in the universe. This this kind of behaviour, or this this person, or me, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. If, I, if only I didn't exist, then everything would be fine. There's this this, this thing that's wrong with the universe, and uh, and so that what we're doing in, in that is we're kind of making a we're getting dislocated from the reality of life. There was a, a time uh, many years ago when uh, one of the, the monks of our community was had really bad knees. This is not uncommon in the meditators' world, but he had particularly bad knees. And he was uh, booked into the hospital in Bangkok, and he was having the cartilages on both knees operated on at the same time, which was a pretty stupid move. <laughs> but anyway, he thought, I'll oh, get it all out of the way, do them both at once. They have both been giving him trouble. Anyway, so uh, he was—he'd been in hospital for quite a while, and uh, things hadn't—the uh, operations hadn't gone terribly well. Anyway, so Ajahn Chah um, occasionally would be down in Bangkok, and he um, showed up at the hospital. He heard this monk was in there, and he showed up at the hospital, and he asked the the, um, the question of the day: "How are you?" And you know, all he had to do was just like tossing a match into a can of gasoline. It was. <laughs> so how are you? And so then this monk kind of launched into this great um, succession of his woes and the incompetence of the doctors. And the basic theme of what he was saying was, it's not fair. It shouldn't be this way. This isn't, this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. And uh, Ajahn Chah was a kind of master of, of um, summing everything up in very brief and, and um, pointed sentences. And he just looked at him and said, well, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. <laughs> Once again, end of subject. <laughs> Which might seem a bit kind of unkind and, and you know, or, or facile, but um, but it's true, you know, that there's this sense in us that somehow everything, you know, sh- you know could be different, should be different. And that there's this thing which is wrong with the universe. What we actually mean is, this is an element of my world that I don't like, or I didn't expect, or doesn't go according to my plan, or what I thought was the plan. And so there's this, we experience this feeling of wrongness. And, and fundamentally, when we, when we use the word suffering, which is a kind of another Buddhist jargonism, come in the Pali word, the scriptural word is dukkha. Dukkha literally means that which is hard to bear. And you know, having looked at this and contemplated it over the years, I, f- I find that the best way of representing what, what dukkha means is it's essentially that feeling of wrongness with, with life. It's like when the, heart, when, when the heart is confused or when we grab things we, uh, in the wrong way, then there's this feeling of wrongness. This shouldn't be. 
I shouldn't have to deal with this pain in my leg. I shouldn't have to have this crazy brother. I shouldn't have to have had such bad treatment from my parents. I shouldn't have such a, uh, a, um, a busy and uncontrolled mind. I shouldn't have lost my job or I shouldn't be treated so unfairly. People shouldn't dislike me. <laughs> Everyone should love me care for me, cherish my presence. <laughs> and, and then when they don't, then they, it's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. And, um, you know, we, can, we, we, we laugh at it and, and you know, you can, we can crack jokes, but, but uh, that's exactly what dukkha is about. It's like that feeling of it shouldn't be, that there is something wrong with the universe and that when we see clearly, when we recognize what we're doing in that, and we see clearly and we, we, we let go of that, um, uh, that which the mind is, is grasping, either trying to possess the beautiful or escape from the painful, or have opinions about the neutral, whatever it might be, when we loosen our grip, then in that, in that relaxation, in that letting go, then in that moment, then there's a, a, an intuitive recognition of the rightness of everything. That everything belongs. Well, it's not what I like, but this is how the universe is. This is the way life is. It's not what I expected. It's not what I would have chosen. But here it is. This is it. It's like you know, going out in the morning and discussing the weather. You know, talking to the sky and you know, arranging the weather for the day. You know, it's crazy. It's meaningless. It just arrives. So um, that that uh, sense of everything belonging. And uh, being able to recognize in, in the same way uh, the movement of the, of the mind into um, how we think it should be and making absolute judgments, then we can see uh, I'm creating suffering for myself. That, that, that movement, that um, wanting things to be different, blaming criticizing the world or ourselves or the people around us. We see as soon as we do that we're creating suffering. And it's actually when we when we let go of that, when we relax our grip, when we have that uh, fundamental recognition of it all belongs. Even cruelty and selfishness and, and uh, deceit, these are part of, of the world. They're not beautiful, they're not they're not and they're not wholesome to follow, but they are part. Violence is part of the world. Animals eat each other. People kill each other. Nature is violent, and it's through an acceptance of that that violence, along with the the beauty and and glory and kindness, loveliness. Of, of nature, when the whole picture is accepted you know, in ourselves and uh, around ourselves, then you know, we find a, a, a spaciousness of being. Uh, we find a, a quality of, of uh, integration that then becomes um, the basis for, for action with, from us, within ourselves which is, uh, is not based on personal preference, it's not based on egoic needs, it's not based on habits and compulsions, it's based entirely upon the sensitivity of the heart to the present moment. So, it's as, and it is a strange and ironic thing, is that when you, let, when you let go of the world completely, you actually find yourself more totally attuned to the world. When you, when you stop worrying about your personality, and how you look, and how you perform, your performance becomes great. When you worry how you're going to do it, 
then you, you miss your beat. It's, just, it's an interesting thing. I've done the evening and morning chanting like thousands of times. And then if I'm chanting with other people, it's, just, it's there, it's automatic. I could do it in my sleep. If I have to do it on my own, uh, and uh, suddenly it's like my responsibility. And then it's like, oh dear, what comes next? <laughs> And you know it back to front. Everyone's had this kind of experience. You know it back to front. Suddenly it's like, oh dear, I hope I don't fail in front of everybody. And it becomes a kind of personality issue, an ego issue, and then suddenly <laughs> the words vanish. So that it's a, it's a strange and ironic thing, just like when the, the Buddha was enlightened, when he completely transcended any kind of identification or attachment to, to the body, the personality, the world, then what happens is that, that from that time his, his li he lived his life in perfect harmony with uh, all beings. And, and also in the, the stories, the, the earth, the world kind of bursts forth into bloom, all the, the, uh, the creatures and the, uh, and the uh, celestial hierarchies all start celebrating, flowers rain down from the skies, the trees burst into flower. Everyone has a party. The world bursts forth and celebrates. But, you know, but this guy is just totally let go. He's totally transcended the world. So there's this strange um, process that occurs that you know, we can begin to, to see that when we forget ourselves, we are most completely ourselves. When we let go of, of self-concern, we come in to ourselves completely. We find uh, a kind of authenticity and stability and ease within our life. Now, it's uh, when contemplating that sense of fairness or, um, or that feeling of it shouldn't be like this or it shouldn't be like that. This is not to say that, you know, it's not to, to represent the Buddha's teaching as trying to turn ourselves into kind of complete kind of vacant spaces. Like, I shouldn't be feeling or shouldn't be thinking. It's, it, don't pick up that idea or that principle and kind of apply it as a, uh, uh, as a, a sort of um, a concept, there was this this fellow in in England. Um, uh, the Buddhist Society is this sort of Victorian gentleman's club. It's a sort of the, the epicenter of armchair Buddhism. <laughs> Don't send this tape to the Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it it is actually it's the kind of uh, it's in this square in the centre of London. It's very much like a sort of the colonial club environment, this uh, ancient sort of Victorian um, dustiness to it. And um, every year they would have this summer school for a couple of weeks. And I went to, a, I went to it a couple of times with Ajahn Sumato back in the early 80s. And there was this um, very uh, uh, dignified old English gent who had been a you know, Buddhist since way back, since the 1930s. And um, he used to refer to himself as it. <laughs> he, was very, he was very big on the idea of selflessness. So he, he always used to call himself it, or if he was getting very expansive, he'd call himself he. <laughs> but usually it, like, it would like some dinner. Or <laughs> yeah. And he talked to his wife like this, like, uh, you know, it would like to go for a walk, Marjorie, what do you reckon? Yeah. And... Uh, it would drive people nuts, you know. <laughs> but it was a kind of taking the principle of selflessness and turning it into a kind of uh, a sort of ego project. It's like when people use the lowercase i to write the, the word I. I mean, it's, whenever I see that, it kind of it makes like, oh, here is a person making a statement. You know, the, the, the kind of personhood of that, 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 in that one individual is that much kind of stronger. Uh, me, I'm so, I'm, I'm, there's so little of me. 
I'm so much, uh, I, I'm so self-effacing, I just, I, I couldn't bear to use a capital I. <laughs> you know, which I, one can understand the principle, but the kind of the result works back to front. So it's important to realize that the Buddha's teaching is, is a very natural process. It's not an imposition upon our own common sense and, and our innate intuition or feeling of how to function easily and freely with our, our friends and, the, and, and in the world. So um, it's like getting a sense for, for this process and um, seeing how it works. Seeing how when the mind is clear, when there's that kind of relaxed openness to our being, just notice how the right answer is there. Energy is there to help other people. We're somehow we're just mu- that much more. E- it's mu- much more easy for us to put down what we're doing, and say, "Oh yeah, I can help." Well, how are you? And suddenly you're there completely for someone. You're not. You're not distracted. You're not, and you're not there for them because you're trying to be a helpful person. It's just a friend needs help. Boom, you're there. Just as if you know you get a. a a, a blow on your leg and your hand goes down to reach it without thinking. We're intrinsically there for the, the, the friends and the people around us. Now the, the last thing I'd like to say then this evening um, you know, on this same kind of theme and what I was bringing up during the meditation today is you know, a lot of this centers around learning to recognize the difference uh, of these qualities, to really get to know the feeling of the mind in the, the grasping state. When the mind is caught up and, and entangled, and there's a strong sense of me and mine, and I want and I don't want, and I can't stand and I've got to have, and I can't bear really getting a feeling, like the, the kind of texture of that I-ness. The, 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 the word for it, the Pali word is ahankara. That means I-ness. And mamankara means minus. Ownership, the feeling of ownership. And just getting a sense of what that, that feeling of, uh, of, of selfhood and ownership is like. Because that's a mental object. The sense of self is just a, a, is like an object in consciousness, just like the texture of cloth or the feeling of a cold breeze, the taste of food in the mouth. The sense of self is just another pattern of perception. And then to to notice what that's like when the mind when there's a, a the mind is clinging to something, chasing something. To really get a taste for that, and then to conscious as you consciously let go of something, and you can you can just sort of make an exercise of this, like you know, pick up a you know an inert object and grasp it. Just just like okay, grasping. Here we are. Okay, grasping. <laughs> this is what's happening, and just actually getting a sense of that's what that tension, the kind of vibration that goes on within us when, the, when we're, we're clutching something. And then, what it feels like to relax, to let go. Haven't thrown the object away, haven't destroyed it, haven't made an, any kind of op- opinion about it. It's still there, it's still the, you know, the, the, gong, the gong striker. It's just the the tension has left my hand. If someone wants to take it away, they can take it away. If I want to put it down, I can put it down. If I want to pick it up, I can pick it up. And to, to, to be clear about the, the difference of quality, as soon as the grasping stops, there's peacefulness. And, that, uh, in the, and this is the, the, central, the central principle around which all of the Buddha's teaching revolves is just that much. That when there's grasping, when there's the mind is caught up, then we create suffering, we create dukkha, we create wrongness, imbalance. 
And when the grasping stops, then everything is okay. Suddenly there's, there's no dukkha. The mind returns to its natural, peaceful, free state. There was a, an occasion where the Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, and another of the, of the monks were having a, an argument about how to define what's called deathlessness, or the, the deathless state, the, the, the pure mind. And they couldn't, they you know, went back and forth and they couldn't come to an agreement. And Eventually, as they always do in these things, they took it to the Buddha and said, okay, well, let's go and ask the Master, see what he says. So they went to the Buddha and they said, you know, what is the deathless state? And oftentimes they would, people would ask the Buddha that sort of question. He'd go into a, you know, several pages of exposition. But on this occasion, he, he just said uh, four or five words. I, I can't remember the Pali of it. But uh, what he said basically was, the ending of grasping is deathlessness. The cessation of grasping is deathlessness. Which means... And that's not like some kind of big metaphysical event, like you know the end of the cosmos. But just when the mind is free of grasping, right there, its natural, original, its original nature, its natural quality is apparent. When there's grasping, that original nature is is masked. That's it. That's the whole story. And so to really get a sense for what grasping feels like and what not grasping feels like. And to really get to know the mind when, the, when it's free of that entanglement. This is what we mean by Nibbana or Nirvana. Is this the natural peace of the mind that is there when we, when we are, we're not grasping, not rejecting? And it's uh, like the Buddha said: the nibbana has no color; it doesn't have a form, it doesn't have a flavor, a taste, a smell, or a, a sound. It's like the space of this room; it's intangible, but it's the very essence of the room. Without the space, there wouldn't be a room. We couldn't get in here. So space doesn't grab our attention, neither does Nibbana. The space of the mind does not grab our attention. So you have to notice space. You have to make a, a point of recognizing that quality of, of emptiness, of radiance, of peacefulness. That quality of, of stillness and wholeness that is there, to actually bring our attention to that, to recognize it and to cherish it. Aha! And to, uh, to allow the heart to rest in that. And this is the whole of the practice, is, is just that much. To incline towards that stillness, inclining to nibbana, inclining towards non-grasping, and allowing the heart to rest in that uh, in that nature, to uh, to abide in that. And the more fully and completely we can do that, then the more full, uh, the more fulfilled, and and. Uh, complete we find our, our life to be, regardless of what we do or where we go. That quality of, of fulfillment, freedom, is right there for us. So I will uh, offer these thoughts for you to contemplate for this evening. Please uh, take what is useful, leave the rest. A one.